Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus uh, chapter 6. So we continue working through the book of Leviticus here. We'll be uh, tonight in Leviticus chapter 6 beginning in verse 8 and we'll read down through to the end of the chapter. Leviticus chapter 6 beginning in verse 8. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth of the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall not, excuse me, shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in front of the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my offerings by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations from the offerings by fire to the Lord. Whoever touches them will become consecrated. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present on to excuse me, present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, the tenth of an ephah of fine flour, as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. The anointed priest who will be in his place among the sons, among his sons shall offer it. By a permanent ordinance, it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place, in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also the earthenware vessel 
in which it was boiled shall be broken. And if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in the water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering of which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten, shall be burned with fire. Now, here in uh, this passage that we've just read, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8, the people are given uh, some additional instructions in regard to the sacrifices that have already been commanded and what has come before in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Some have pointed out, and perhaps it is uh, worth mentioning, that this is a little bit different than what you see in some of the other ancient religions where for, uh, in some cases, it seems that the, uh, the worship of the priest and what would go on was, was kept secret from the people, that not everybody was supposed to know about what the priests were doing and what went on. But whereas in the true worship of God, is written down, everybody can read it. Everybody should read it. Everybody should have access to, to hearing what is read. There's nothing secret here going on in the worship of the Lord. And so the text that we've read has four main sections. There's a section beginning in verse 8 that contains additional instructions in regard to the the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings had been discussed back in chapter 1 of Leviticus. The section beginning in verse 14 contains additional instruction about the grain offerings. Grain offerings were commanded back in chapter 2. The section beginning in verse 19 relates to a specific grain offering which was to be made uh, for the anointed priest who was... In other words, the high priest. And then finally, the section beginning in verse 24 contains additional instructions in regard to the sin offerings. Sin offerings were commanded uh, back in chapter 4 of Leviticus. So let's look look at each of these sections then in turn. Now the section on the the burnt offerings, beginning there in verse 8, gives the specifics on how the priests were to keep the fire going on the altar, how the burnt offering was to remain on the hearth all night until morning, how the priests are then to remove the ashes. They were to remove the ashes wearing uh, their undergarments and their linen robe. The linen was white, symbolic of purity and righteousness. And thus we find in Revelation 19.8 that it is said of the bride of Christ that it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. One of the advantages of linen that is particularly mentioned in connection with being worn by the priesthood is found in Ezekiel 44.18, where it is said uh, that linen helps in regard to sweat. You don't perspire as much in wearing linen garments, and that's specifically noted there in Ezekiel 44.18. And then once those ashes had been removed from the altar by the priest wearing those linen garments, he was to change his clothes, whether into other priestly garments or into common garments, is not entirely specified. And then they were to place those ashes outside the camp in a clean place. Even though they were ashes, they were the ashes of holy things, sacrifices to the Lord, and must be treated as such. They were not to be simply discarded into any old place whatsoever, but put in a clean place. And inasmuch as the sacrifices ultimately point to Christ... We do well to remember that after his death, Christ's body was wrapped in clean linen, placed in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, according to what we find in Matthew 27, 59-60 and Luke 23, 53. In other words, the tomb 
had not been defiled already by a dead body. Christ's tomb was a clean place outside the camp, as it were. Now, verses 12 and 13 are emphatic that the fire on the altar was not to go out. It was to be kept burning perpetually. They were supposed to keep it stoked, keep the wood on it, keep the fire going. The origin of the fire seems to have been that fire which came out from the Lord and consumed the first burnt offerings and fat portions, which is described for us later in Leviticus 9.24. And interestingly enough, you see something similar happening in uh, 2 Chronicles 7, chapter 1, uh, excuse me, 7, verse 1, when Solomon instituted the worship at the temple. And so you have the, the tabernacle in the Mosaic era, and then under Solomon, of course, we have the, the temple being built in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, you have the Lord sending down fire and consuming the first offerings on the altar at the temple. And so the, the fire is, is divine in its origins. The priests are supposed to keep it burning. And this, this was a big deal. And in fact, this was such a big deal that 2 Maccabees chapter 1 contains an account that seems more legendary than historical in which it is claimed that at the time of the Babylonian exile, when the Babylonians came into the the temple and and Jerusalem and, and wreaked havoc on everything, that there were some pious priests who took the fire of the altar and secretly hid it in a dry cistern and took care that no one else would find it. And this account in 2 Maccabees goes on to tell how after the exile, Nehemiah sent some descendants of those priests to get that fire so that they could use the same fire to rekindle the fire on the altar at the the new temple that had been built during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And according to the account, the descendants of the priests reportedly went to the place and found no fire, but they found this, this thick liquid. And Nehemiah said, bring it out. And uh, they placed it on the wood and on the sacrifices. And reportedly, when the sun came out from behind the clouds and shone down, a fire blazed up and the sacrifice was consumed. Now, obviously, the text of Second Maccabees is not canonical. And the account seems more legendary than historical. But even assuming it is legendary, the legend makes a point. And the point is that the perpetuity of the fire of the altar is a really big deal. Right? This, is, this is something that, that loomed large in the, in the minds of the Jews. Uh, and uh, at least uh, according to some other accounts, the fire on the altar w- did not go out until the Babylonians tore down the temple. This was, this was a big deal. And the law pertaining to it is given here in Leviticus chapter 6. I once heard a story... Uh, don't know how factual it was, but it was about a family who, when they were moving from Scotland, had figured that the fire on their hearth in their ancestral family home, I guess, had been burning for 400 years or, or something to that effect. It's easier to keep a wood fire going than it is to start a new one. And this is all the more important when we consider that the origin of this fire here was divine. Matthew Henry commented on this text, verses 12 and 13, by saying, Those that keep good houses never let their kitchen fire go out. Therefore God would thus give an instance of his good housekeeping. By this law we are taught to keep up in our minds a constant disposition to all acts of piety and devotion and habitual affection to divine things, so as to be always ready to every good work and word. We must not only not quench the spirit, but we must stir up the gift that is in us. Though we be not always sacrificing, yet we must keep the fire of holy love always burning. And thus we must pray always. 
Now, Paul's command to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, was that he kindle afresh or fan into flame the gift of God that was in him. And we, likewise, must take care that the fires of godly desires, love for God and love for others, don't die out. God himself has kindled this fire in our hearts at our conversion and has given us a love for him, a love that was not there before. He's given us a love for our neighbors, which we lacked previously. Peter tells us that God's divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And he goes on to command that, therefore, we apply all diligence and add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. That's 2 Peter 1, 3 through 7. These things are, are given to us by the Lord, but nevertheless, we are commanded to apply all diligence in adding these things to our faith. In other words, we're commanded to, to keep the fire going. The Lord has kindled this fire within us. We're supposed to, to be working with the Lord, obviously by His grace and by His Spirit at work within us. But nevertheless, we have responsibility in this regard. And so Peter says, 2 Peter 1.8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Brothers and sisters, let's keep the fire going. This takes work, this takes skill, this takes intentionality. Intentionality in worshiping God in public and in private, using the Lord's means of grace toward us. This is one reason why we gather as a church to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another. This is one of the big ways of, of keeping the fire going, by, by gathering together, by hearing the word of God, by observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and seeking in our interpersonal relationships with one another to edify one another. This is, this is one way to, to soak the fire, to keep, keep the wood going. Also, this applies to us as individuals in our, in our Bible reading, in our prayers, and in our uh, fellowship with other believers throughout the week when we're not here gathered together, there are lots of ways and means that the Lord has given us to, to keep the fire going. So let's keep the fuel on the fire. Now verses 14 through 18 contain instructions in regard to uh, the, the grain offerings that were offered uh, and described back in chapter 2 of Leviticus. The uh, the for the grain offerings, the priests were to take a handful of flour, this is called the memorial portion, and they are to offer it up in smoke on the altar as a soothing aroma, along with the oil and the incense. And the rest of the grain offerings belonged to the priests as their share of the Lord's offerings by fire. The priests were to eat their portions as unleavened cakes in a holy place, specifically the court of the tent of meeting. And now, Lord willing, we're going to come back to this issue of, of eating, eating from the altar here in a moment. So we'll, we'll speak more of that here in just a few minutes, Lord willing. Verses 19 through 23 described another type of grain offering uh, in which the anointed priest or the high priest was to offer on the day that he was anointed. The amount of flour is a, a tenth of an ephah, which is roughly a tenth of a bushel. And uh, this flour was to be prepared with oil on a griddle, well stirred, and then offered up in baked pieces, half in the morning, half in the evening. And though it was to be offered on the day of his anointing, that is specified, it seems also that this was to be offered daily. 
uh, in the case of the high priest. Our modern translations render verse 20 as speaking of a regular grain offering. And the word, the, the original word means, means continually. And it seems that this was a, a daily sacrifice that the priest was to offer for himself. And Hebrews 7.27 contrasts these high priests of old with our great high priest, Jesus Christ, when it says that Jesus does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The high priests of old were, were always sacrificed. Every day they had to be there at the altar and sacrificing. This was a job that was, was never done under the old covenant. Our Lord Jesus, however, offered only one sacrifice, and that was sufficient for all, sufficient for all time. Praise God for that. And then finally, there in verses 24 to 30, we see the instructions concerning the sin offering. Sin offering is said to be most holy, to be eaten by the priests in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. In other words, great regard was to be had for the flesh and blood of the sin offering. And you can see that there in that it said that the one who touched the flesh would become consecrated. Uh, the blood was to be highly esteemed in that if it spilled on a, on a garment, it was, to be, uh, it was to be washed out. And uh, since earthenware vessels were, were porous on the inside and even washing and scouring might not get out all of the blood in which a part of the sacrifice was boiled, if, uh, if it was boiled in an earthenware vessel, afterwards it was to be broken. Uh, bronze vessels uh, had to be scoured and rinsed with water, they being more expensive and also smoother on the surface so you could actually get the blood cleaned out. The flesh and blood of the sacrifice were to be treated as holy and not, not lightly esteemed. And I think that understanding this and understanding the regard with which they were to treat the flesh and blood of the sacrifice, I think serves to underscore the point of Hebrews 10.29, where the writer says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted Spirit of grace. Seeing here the regard which would be had for the, the blood and the flesh of the sacrifices reminds us that we must not treat our Lord Jesus Christ and his offering for us, once for all on the cross, as a light thing. The priests were permitted to eat of the sin offerings with the exception of what is stated there in verse 30. Look at verse 30. He says, but no sin offering of which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. In other words, what we see here in verses 24 through 30 is that there is a distinction. There are some sin offerings that can be eaten there by the priests in the holy place. And there are some that cannot. And I realize it's been a few weeks, but if you think back to the law that was given for sin offerings back in chapter 4, you, you may recall that of the four sin offerings that were mentioned there in chapter 4, there were two of the four cases where the blood of the sin offering was sprinkled seven times in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That was the case for the sin offering of the high priest and for the sin offering of the entire congregation. The, in those cases, the blood was to be sprinkled. 
uh, seven times in front of the veil. The fat was to be taken out of the animal, offered up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. In both of those cases, the bull, uh, the remainder of the bull, is to be taken outside the camp to a clean place and burned. And so, sprinkle the blood seven times, cut off the fat, offer the fat on the offering of, of uh, the altar of burnt offering, and then take out the rest of the bull, flesh, hide, everything, and take it outside the camp to a clean place and burn it. And verse 30 here of chapter 6 makes a reference back to those sacrifices that are described there in chapter 4. And in regard to those sin offerings, where the blood was taken into the holy place to make atonement, sacrifices not to be eaten, but to be burned with fire. And if you are familiar with later on in the, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice there was, was very similar in this regards. The blood was taken into the holy place to make atonement, the fat was offered up on the altar, and then the hide, the flesh, the refuse, everything else of the bull was to be taken outside the camp, burned with fire. And the priest could eat from the other sin offerings, but not from those whose blood was taken into the holy place. And, and this is helpful in shedding light on the meaning of the book of Hebrews. And so we're told in Hebrews 9.12 that through his own blood, Jesus entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We're told in Hebrews 9.24 that Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In short, in other words, the, the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is making is that Christ's blood was brought into the true holy place in the presence of God in order to make atonement for us. And this was foreshadowed in a special way by these, these sin offerings whose blood was taken in the holy place in the tabernacle. And as verse 30 makes clear, these were sacrifices of which the priests were not able to to eat. But in this regard, something has changed in the new covenant. So we read this in Hebrews 13, 10 to 12. It might be helpful for you to turn there because we're going to be thinking about this passage here a little bit in connection with what we see here in Leviticus 6. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 10, this is what we read. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, what is the writer to the Hebrews trying to say here? He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And then he goes on to speak of the very reality that we've just been considering here in Leviticus. Uh, we see it here at the end of Leviticus 6. We saw it a few weeks ago in Leviticus chapter 4, where those sin offerings whose blood is brought into the holy place, the sacrifices, the, the rest of the animal was taken outside the camp and burned. Verse 30 of our text makes it clear that those sacrifices must not be eaten by the priest. If the blood is taken into the holy place, this is not to be eaten by the priest. But yet, 
the writer to the Hebrews says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, what, what's going on here? I think one commentator on the book of Hebrews helpfully explained the situation like this. He says this, The sacrifice of Christ, plainly then, belongs to that class of sacrifices which not only the Israelites generally, but the priests, I, even the high priests, were forbidden to participate. We Christians are permitted spiritually to feast on this sacrifice, to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. We are allowed to feed on the sacrifice offered up for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole people of God. And we thus have a far higher privilege in reference to sacred food, not merely than the Israelites, but even that the priests themselves enjoyed. In other words, we have an even greater privilege in regard to eating at the altar, as it were, than the priests in the Old Testament had. The priests had a share in the eating of some sacrifices, but they didn't get to eat of the most important sacrifices, right? These, the sin offering for the high priest, they couldn't eat from that. The sin offering for the entire congregation, they couldn't eat from that. The sin offering on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, they couldn't eat from that. Where the blood was taken in the holy place, no eating for the priests. But nevertheless, we as believers get to partake, spiritually speaking, of the most important sacrifice of all time, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself speaks of this in John 6, 53 to 56, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats and drinks... Eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. So what does this mean and what is the the takeaway, especially on an evening when we're coming to the Lord's table? First of all, let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting in any way that the Lord's table is an altar. It is not. No sacrifice has ever been offered there nor will any sacrifice ever be offered there, at least not so long as I'm your pastor. There is no sacrifice that takes place on the Lord's table. And secondly, the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood that Jesus was speaking about there in John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. John 6, Jesus is not describing there the Lord's Supper per se. To eat the flesh of Christ and to drink his blood is to believe. Indeed, Jesus himself establishes that metaphor for us in John 6. He gives us the key to his words in John 6, 37, where he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, to come to Christ, to believe in him is to eat his flesh. To believe in him is to drink his blood. To eat his flesh And drink his blood is to come to him in faith. This is what it means to eat from this altar from which the priests of old had no right to eat. But nevertheless, even with all of that said, we may say, as some have said, that John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper, but rather the Lord's Supper is about John chapter 6. 
In other words, what we do when we come to the Lord's table, eating the bread and drinking the cup, points us back to what Jesus is talking about in John 6, about eating the flesh of the Son of Man by faith, drinking the blood of the Son of Man, coming to him in faith. Paul indicates to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that when we partake of the cup and eat of the bread, we are sharing in the blood of Christ and sharing in the body of Christ. It is a communion, a fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. certainly does not mean that the bread is changed into flesh or that the cup is changed into blood. It means no such thing. But it does mean that when we come to the Lord's Supper in faith, we're testifying to the great truth that our only hope is Christ, Him crucified once for all, His blood shed for us on the cross. We're saying that His death on the cross is the means of our life, the means by which we live, that we rely upon His body and His blood which was sacrificed for us on the cross for the life of our souls. And through faith in him, Jesus gives life to our souls. He sustains our souls just as our physical bodies are sustained with food and drink. Our bodies can't live without food and neither can our souls live without Christ. And when we come to the Lord's Supper in faith, we're testifying to this great truth. Not that our only hope of salvation is eating the cup, or excuse me, eating, eating the bread and drinking the cup, but rather we're testifying that these symbols point to the great reality by which we receive spiritual life. That our only hope is the body and blood of Jesus which was offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. We draw our spiritual life from Christ. And historically, uh, Reformed theologians have made a distinction uh, between what they refer to as spiritual eating, which is the kind of eating of John 6, drawing our spiritual life by faith from Christ, and what they would refer to as a sacramental eating, the, the eating of the, the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper. And I think the Second Helvetic Confession was, was helpful in speaking of this. They say this, besides the, the higher spiritual eating, eating by faith, the body and blood of Christ, there is also a sacramental eating of the body of the Lord by which not only spiritually and internally the believer truly participates in the true body and blood of the Lord, but also by coming to the table of the Lord outwardly and receives the visible sacrament of the body and blood of the Lord. To be sure, when the believer believed, he first received the life-giving food and still enjoys it. But therefore, when he now receives the sacrament, he does not receive nothing, for he progresses in continuing to communicate in the body and blood of the Lord. And so his faith is kindled and grows more and more and is refreshed by spiritual food. For while we live, faith is continually increased, and he who outwardly receives the sacrament by true faith not only receives the sign, but also, as we said, enjoys the thing itself." Moreover, he obeys the Lord's institution and commandment and with a joyful mind gives thanks for his redemption and that of all mankind and makes a faithful memorial of the Lord's death and gives witness before the church of whose body he is a member. And so the, the point is, is that we, we have our spiritual life simply by, by coming to Christ by faith, but when we, when we come to the Lord's table, we're given, we're given a token 
of, of our redemption, our faith and assurance is, is strengthened. We are publicly acknowledging that our only hope is Christ. So brothers and sisters, we, we have an altar, right? We're not coming to the altar tonight, we're coming to the table. But we have an altar by which we daily feed upon Christ, who, whose blood was taken into the holy place for us. And our coming to the table tonight is an outward sign of our internal and daily feeding on Christ. And in it, we, we remember. We do this, as Jesus said, in memory, in remembrance of him and his great grace and love and sacrifice for us. And so let's, let's come to the Lord's table tonight, full of love for Christ, full of gratitude for the greatness of his sacrifice, which we daily partake of by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you tonight and we are reminded that the sacrifice of Christ was a particular kind. It was indeed one of a kind. It was foreshadowed by certain kinds of the the sin offerings and certainly by the Day of Atonement. But nevertheless, those things were the blood of bulls and and goats, which can never take away sin. But we come to you tonight in grateful praise that the blood of your only begotten Son was shed for us and shed in our place. We pray that you would, would strengthen our faith and would, uh, would nourish us as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. We pray that you would fill our hearts with love for him and uh, that, you would, that you would be with us and that you would bless us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.